Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hi, my name is Grigor Dimitrov, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Hi, I'm Mats Vilander, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Brad Gilbert on this week's edition of the Tennis Podcast, former world number four, and of course, one of the, the best coaches in history, and now, now a very successful commentator as well. Brad, I have to ask you, first of all, you're making your ATP Champions debut here in Delray Beach at the age of 53. I think, I think that's a record. How's it been for you? Um, I'd like to have made my debut at maybe 39, 40. Um, and I was a late uh, replacement. I had a really good time. Unfortunately, when I got on the plane from San Francisco, I left my serve and my backhand, my two most reliable shots. They didn't get on the plane. And, you know, the one thing I didn't, you know, I just had two days to get ready. So I didn't train that hard so I wouldn't get injured like Emilio Sanchez. He trained for two days, got hurt. But I survived three days. I had a really good time. But the guys out here are just a little better than my level at this point. But... I think I'm going to train a little harder. I don't know if I'm going to play anymore, but I'm going to train harder, though, now. They didn't make life easy for you, they did. They put you up against Mark Filipusis and Goran Ivanisevic, both of whom look at their best like they could still be winning matches on the tour, I think. Those two were over my skis. You know, I mean, even if I played, you know, as well as I could, they're, they're much younger, they move better, they serve big. The one that surprised me the most was Pernfors. I see the guy, he's on the table, he's telling me he's a wreck, his back is this, and then he was out there, he was scurrying around the court, I couldn't believe how well he played. So if we were playing poker, he would have taken all my money because I didn't think he could move one step. I want to talk to you a little bit about US tennis because it's a bit of a tale of two halves at the moment. Let's deal with the women first because, frankly, things are going brilliantly for the women. You've got world number one, Serena Williams. She doesn't look like she's going anywhere. And then you've got the likes of Madison Keys coming along who, after Australia, it looks like is a real, a real genuine threat to be winning Grand Slam titles. You're in a pretty good position. Well, there's no doubt. Madison, I believe, in the next... Uh Eight, uh, let's say 24 to 36 months, will become number one in the world and win slams. She has that much athleticism, talent. On the ladies' side, we have eight in the top 50, 14 in the top 100. And what's amazing is about 10 of them are under 23. So, But in the States, the biggest female sport in the world by far is women's tennis. You can't compare you know, men's tennis like in the States, because we have football, basketball, but you have so many other sports that great athletes are going into. But if, on the female side, if you're a great athlete, there's no other sport that, that can be financially a, as fruitful as playing tennis. So we are getting the great athletes on the female side. We Hopefully one day we'll start to get better on the athletic side, on the men's side. We do have some decent 17, 18-year-olds coming now, but you know it's going to take time. But we're clearly 
you know, way behind on the ladies' side. What's your assessment of uh, on on the men's side? What's it down to? Is it that is it? You mentioned on the women's side, tennis is by far and away head and shoulders the number one sport for women. Is the problem with the men that tennis is competing with so many other sports, and the kids that are good at tennis, they might be choosing to play baseball or football or. There's no doubt that like our three biggest sports, football, basketball, and baseball, are subsidized by the government. And if you grow up in a inner city or you grow up where you don't have a lot of money in your family you can play at all the youth leagues you know in school and not really have much of a cost in tennis in the states you need somebody to take you to all the tournaments to practice to equipment it's an extremely expensive sport that they still haven't figured out how to make it cheaper for and and we got to do a better job of finding great athletes to get them in tennis because if you look at Djokovic's and Murray's and Federer's and Dahl, these are world-class athletes. And obviously we have them in football, basketball, and baseball. we just not in tennis yet. You mentioned a few youngsters coming through. Uh, on the American side, you've got Stefan Kozlov, uh, who looks like a real promising talent. He looks like he's only about 11 years old. He, he does, and we have Jared Donaldson. We have Michael Moe, Tiafu, uh, Harry Fritz. Um, I mean, we have about... You know, 8 to 10 right now that are in that 17 to 19 range. And what will be important is if they can push each other. And our, our big goal is to see if we can get a young player to get in the top 50, to get in the top 20. You know, it's not like before where every time we had a good young player, we expected him to be number one in the world. Now it's like, let's get in the top 100, let's get in the top 20. So that I think, and then we can go from there. But we, we can't expect to have Madison Keys yet on the men's side, even though we want it so badly, but it's not there yet. And in terms of the other non-American youngsters, there's a really exciting crop, aren't there? We've got Borna Chorich, we've got uh, Zverev coming through, Tanasi Kokonakis, who I saw in qualifying here yesterday. And you forgot really about looks... Chirios Kyrgios, uh, who's going to, uh, you know, and... Right now, there's a, a Korean boy, Hayden Chung. There's the Swedish kid that's really young. There's a great, great group of under 19 right now. And when Kyrgios beat Nadal at Wimbledon, I think that changed a lot of how young players are. Why should it take so long? And I expect that group, whether or not it's Korich or it's uh, Kyrgios or Kakanakis or Zverev, those four guys, you know, all got some serious, serious game. And I think that those kids are going to make some real noise in the next three, four years. And I wouldn't be surprised if Kyrgios did it sooner because he's a little bit ahead of the other ones because he's already made a couple of quarters. But I expect the other ones to join. But Kyrgios is, is the furthest along at the moment. And, and Korich I like a lot. And there's another crop, isn't there, of guys who are a little further along, sort of, you've got the Dimitrovs, the Raonic's. Who, for you, is the next new Grand Slam champion, someone who hasn't won one before? Uh, I must warn you, we, we put this question to John McEnroe a couple of months ago at the Albert Hall, and he gave us quite a bold answer, so I'm interested yeah, you, to see. You, you know, we talked about this a lot during on ESPN before the Australian Open. Which one? Would it be Nishikori? Would it be Dimitrov? Would it be Raonic? And... I thought, I mean, and we were just talking specifically in 2015. And I got to thinking, this is the, the day before the tournament started, and I got to thinking, you know what? I have this real feeling that 
Djokovic is going to have a monster 2015, maybe like he did in 2011. And if he does, that doesn't leave a lot, you know, and Nadal on clay and Murray's playing better and Fed still amazing at 34. So I'm not so sure, you know, not to not to mention Burdich and Verwinka week in and week out. I'm not so sure things are going to change. I, I think that Nishikori maybe could have one. Uh, like he did at the Open, or maybe Milos. I think each one has an opportunity to have a good slam. But if I had to bet, I'm not sure at 2015 it's going to happen just because of I, I just have this feeling that Djokovic is in for a monster year. When do you see it happening then? It, I mean, it started in Australia. You know, so he's got one, and I, I'm going to say for sure. He wins another one, and it would not surprise me in the slightest to see him win three this year, just like he did in 2011. You know, maybe Murray wins one, maybe Nadal wins one, who knows about Fed. So that doesn't leave a lot for winning one. Maybe, like I said, I could see Anishikori or Amilos, one of those guys, making a final. But the only way I can see them winning, maybe if all of a sudden, you know, Three, you know, they don't have to play a big four, you know, in a semis or final, like something like that where a slam does fall apart. Now you mentioned Rafa there. How you were out in Australia, you watched his performances. How worried are you about Rafa? Do you think everyone's overreacting a little bit? He's done this before. It'll be a different story when he gets onto the clay. Or do you think this really could be the signs of a slightly waning Rafa Nadal? Um, I mean, I completely hold out judgment until I see him play on the clay. You know, if all of a sudden he starts, you know, taking lumps on the clay, you know, where he doesn't win any tournaments, like, okay, then all of a sudden maybe we have to. But considering his record and how he's been on the clay, I mean, I have to wait to see how he is physically and how he is. But it certainly wouldn't surprise me to see him win three of the next five on the clay and regain because that's what he's consistently been able to do. And Murray, is there room for him in 2014? 2015, uh, Yeah, you, 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 you sold the year there. I said at, the, um, at the, one of my predictions for 2015, uh, which before we started the tournament was, I said that Murray would finish the year in the top four and he would make the finals of a slam. So he already did that. Um, and he's back in the top four. And I, I think he'll have another good slam. And I, I still think he'll finish in the top four. I want to talk coaching to you for a little bit because obviously you know better than anyone about coaching. You've coached the last two American players to reach number one on the men's side, Andy Roddick and Andre Agassi. And coaching is a big, big topic in tennis at the moment, both in the men's side and now on the women's side. We've got Lindsay Davenport and Martina Ratalova having a hand in it. Uh, We've actually got a question come in from Adam Bilcher who asks, do you think you have to have been a former top 100 player yourself to be able to coach a top player? Um... You know, I, I feel like it does help, but you can be a great coach without... Look at uh, Uncle Tony. It's worked great for him. He never even was a player, I think, on the tour at all. Um, you know, Fed's guy that, that's kind of been, you know, part of his team with Varinka, um, the, the Swiss Davis Cup guy, I don't think he ever played on the tour, and, and he's been with those guys. Bob Brett's been a great coach. Um, I think it helps. But, but the big thing is the subject that you're coaching, you, you, you know. It, it, and one of my pet peeves now is to he, 
that hear the media and a, and a lot of people keep calling them celebrity coaches. It really annoys me to say that a guy that's a former great player is a celebrity coach. He's a great player now who's coaching that's offering, you know, and obviously is knowledgeable about the game. But to call somebody a celebrity coach is an insult. You know, when you hear whether or not it's Becker or it's Edberg or it's Michael Chang or it's Gorn, it's like, why are they a celebrity? I mean, they're a celebrity because they were a great player, but to, to say that they're a celebrity coach is an insult to their coaching ability. Now, for you, did you get more satisfaction from coaching and from coaching a successful pupil or from playing and your own personal success? I mean, I, I, mean, I love playing, um, but I, I think... Um, I owe a lot to Andre because he, you know, was the one that saw me being a coach even before, you know, I even thought about it. And I do love helping players fulfill their dreams, making it happen. Um, And I'm over, like, my playing days are over. It's like, okay, they're not coming back. But I love coaching and I love helping players to get better. And um, But there's no taking away that I love playing. That was fun. But so is coaching, and so is TV. So knock on wood, I've got a chance to do everything in tennis, and I'm still trying to learn and figure it out. Can you tell me about... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas... You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That day when you got the call from Andre, or however it happened, can you tell me how you felt when you got the call from Andre asking um, you to coach him? Well, I didn't really know that it was coming. You know, we just went out for dinner in Miami. We were playing in 1994 um, in Key Biscayne, and Andre was playing a British guy. I'll, I'll tell you who it was. This is really bad. You know, who, who was Murray, one of Murray's first coaches. He does TV. Mark Petchy. Agassi was playing Pecci, and I don't even know who I was playing, but I was seated above Andre in the tournament. Andre was coming back from wrist surgery. We went out to dinner, you know, because we, we were friends, and we played Davis Cup together, and we ended up having like a three-hour dinner. And he asked me a ton of questions about where he was headed in, in his game and what he needed to do. And basically, at the end of the night, I told him, listen, I'll meet you at 9 o'clock tomorrow for practice, and we'll get after it. And he's like, I never practiced before, too. And he goes, like, 9 o'clock tomorrow. We'll, we'll start practice and go from there. And basically, that was it. There was nothing drawn up. And we just started, like, the next day. 
and he got to the final that week and lost to Pete. Pete had, uh, was sick in the final. Andre gave him like six hours to get ready, and then Pete beat him in the final. But that's how we started. Just basically said, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow, and we'll work on your game tomorrow. You've coached players to play against Pete, and you coach players to play against Roger. What's the difference, and which is harder? How do, how do you prepare a player to, against, to play against either of those? I'll tell you, the, the, the most important thing about coaching, okay, when I coached Andre, whether or not I coached Roddick or Moore, every player is different. Everybody has different strengths and weaknesses on how you attack a player. So you don't say that I'm going to have the same strategy for Agassi to attack a player as Roddick or Murray or, or I coach Nishikori. And so I like to think of I look through their lenses and their eyes, what's the best for what they do, and look for what their strengths can exploit their opponent's weaknesses, what are their opponent's strengths, to what are they trying to exploit. So I think most importantly, you never compare one player to another and you try to work with their strengths. Very interesting. And uh, in terms of the, the Agassi-Sampras rivalry, well, what was that like to be inside from your perspective? You were obviously very much inside and a part of that. What was it like? Oh, I mean, I just wish sometimes, that well, why does this guy have to serve so damn big? I mean, uh, that 2001 U.S. Open, four tiebreakers. I mean, I, I mean, sometimes I would sit there and say, it's just not possible. He, his serve was just like... I said, could I just borrow that for a week? Um, they had some amazing matches. Unfortunately, like, Andre would be the better player through the, through the final. And then somehow Pete would watch Andre, and, like, all of a sudden it's like, okay, i got to just turn on the engine another gear. And he did that so many times. I mean, he had an unbelievable ability to raise the level of his game at the end of the tournament, which is an amazing quality. Now, at the top of the show, when I listed your many achievements, one that I failed to mention was you're an author of a very, very famous and successful book, Winning Ugly. Is there a player at the moment on the tour, perhaps on the men's and the women's side, who do you think the bet is the best at the moment at Winning Ugly? Uh, there's no doubt when I started coaching Murray in 2006 that he would be right up there, um, that he had the ability to frustrate guys the way he played and I might say now Tomic has it a little bit that, you know, the, he has that eclecticness in his game. Um, but Murray is just a way better version of, of what I did. He's trying to play more offensive-minded. But, like, before when he played more defense and relied on his legs, I would say his was more similar to mine. Just he did it better. Um, um and he's trying to play more offense now. I had an 87-year-old lady today that I was on the court with. She came up to me, and she goes, that damn book, Winning Ugly, it ruined my game. I don't know if she was kidding, but I've had so many players. I mean, it's one of the greatest satisfactions. I had a Russian girl player come up to me last year who was playing, and she had the book since she was 10. She's playing on tour, and she had everything in yellow and highlighted it. What did you mean about this? What did you mean? Like, you know... It's always rewarding to to feel after all this time that people still feel like that that book helped them in any way. And I kind of did the book on a whim, and I just enjoy that people feel like it helped them in their game. Fascinating. That was a question from Scarlett Rose, I should have said. And fascinating. Not the not the eighty seven year old lady today that gave me grief about my game. (laughs) She doesn't want to know anything about winning ugly. She doesn't want to hear the name. She told me today after my match, "You make too many unforced errors. Stop doing that." You should employ her as your coach. Uh, Another question that's come in from Scarlett Rose again, actually. She wants to know who had the most natural talent out of Agassi, Roddick and Murray, your three big coaching charges. Well, you know the key to coaching? Absolutely. Have somebody make you look good. 
And when the player looks, he plays unbelievable, it makes the coach even smarter. But there's no doubt of those three, Andre had the most natural talent for hitting the ball. I mean, he's as clean as a ball striker as you'll ever see. And his natural talent, hand-eye coordination is off the charts. Now, another listener question has come in. In fact, this is from Scarlet Rose as well, but a number, a number came in along these lines. Let's talk nicknames, Brad. How you're, you're famous for your nicknames that you give to players. I'm going to give the listeners a sample just in case they don't know. We've got Boom Boom for Sabine Lasicki. We've got Joker for Novak Djokovic. Fed Fan, Federer, Muzzard, Muzzard. How do you pronounce that? Muzzard. But I have a lot of, you know, like uh, Jalapeno. For Halep, which she now took and, and put it on a T-shirt, Kerber baby for uh, uh, Kerber. Um, you know, I don't, you know, some names are you know um, Rock for for Stefan Koz, um, Kozlov just tweeted me a couple weeks ago. He goes, "Why don't I have a nickname?" So I gave him Rock the Kozba. Okay, so when somebody comes to you and they say, "Why don't I have, I have a nickname?" Do they do you just wait for inspiration in the no, middle of the night, or no, do you sit no, and no, think no, about no, them? No, but people think I have a staff or whatever. Some names, when you look at them, you know, there's a lot more to work with in a name. And so when you get a name that's easier to work with, a lot of different ones come in your head. Do you have a favorite? Um, no, I mean I like jalapeno, I, but I stand, I couldn't believe that she had in Australia. She had a shirt made up with three peppers uh, on Adidas, and then all of a sudden I was like, and I asked Adidas, you don't give me any credit, and they go, oh, we made up that name. I'm like, come on. And then, like, in stories and a lot of, you know, you know, for, like, Special K for Nishikori, when I named him that, like, in 2011, they'll be right, Special K is on the cover of Time magazine. So people take my nicknames, and they don't want to give me credit. You should trademark them so you I, get some I, royalties. I, I, you know, I made me need to start thinking about that. Now, obviously, David Law, Paul David Law, is not here himself to yeah. uh, co-present Yeah, and he, get, he gets down on me sometimes for the nicknames. He's a little too serious. He needs to lighten up just a little bit. He's just a hard-line journalist a little bit. And sometimes, like, you know, you know, he needs to crack a joke every once in a while and maybe drink a couple of beers. You obviously missed the photos of him in Australia with SpongeBob SquarePants. And I did the not see that. That was him cracking a joke. Okay, good. See, the, the, we need to get him a little bit, like... Out of his shell. Well, he's got a few questions for you that okay. he sent in to me. Okay. Uh, he would like to know what were Lendl and McEnroe, why were they such nightmares for you to play against? Uh, good question. I wish that I was better player, but they were just a bit better than me. I mean, Lendl, uh, the last time that I played Lendl, I was about to say nobody beats me 16 times in a row. I was up 4-1, double break in the third in Philly. End up choking, lose five in the third. Lendl comes in the locker room after the match. I got a bunch of ice on my foot. I hurt my foot. He goes, if I had 110 temperature and I was on my deathbed, I still don't lose to you. And John had the ability just to take time away from you. Also, John and Jimmy, like, they could get away with, they could call the referee. They were bigger than the game, beyond being amazing. I mean, John could stop anything for 15 minutes, you know, but they were just, uh, their games were just better than mine, and I wish I was a little bit better, but they, they were better. I'd, you, lie, I'd like to lie and tell you no, but they were better than me. But you did have four wins over Sampras in your career, including one, I think, at, at Queens on the grass. Can you talk me through the, your memories of that? I beat him like a couple weeks before he won his first Wimbledon. I, I, you know, 
I got him a few times when he was young. I beat Andre four times. I beat Beck. I beat a lot. I, I get him when they were young and they hadn't figured me out. But the problem was Lendl and Mac were close to my age. And by the time when I was coming up, they were already too good. I mean, they were good at young ages. And I felt like when I played Lendl, it was like, man, is he going to take my lunch money? <laughs> and John was just, everything happened so fast the way he, he just took time away from you. And what's it like seeing them now? How, how different is it? How much can you put all those experiences of the past behind you and you can just be sort of friends, friends that well, see one another? John is still ultra competitive. At his tennis, he still takes his tennis unbelievably serious and he's really good. Yvonne, like, is more like I am. He's like not living in the past and he's really mellowed out and his whole, like, he doesn't live like on what he used to do and when he plays, he has fun. He likes to crack a ridiculous amount of jokes. But, you know, they're both different guys. I like them both. I work with John and every time I'm around Yvonne, you know, it's not like... He's given me grief about crushing me all those times. They're good people. And just finally, I have to ask you, is coaching behind you now? Or if you got a call from, say, like a really exciting youngster, one of the ones you mentioned perhaps with, with real promise that, that could be a Grand Slam champion, would you find it hard to resist that temptation? Well, I mean, I have a contract with ESPN for another 18 months. And, I, and you know, I love doing ESPN. But I, I always say never say never. But I'm really happy at ESPN. They've been great to me. It's a lot of fun. We have a great team. Every once in a while, all I can do is make a lousy prediction. But I I do miss coaching. But I'm having a great time doing what I'm doing on TV. But, like, I'll leave it on never say never. James Bond came back. You know, Roger Connery, uh, Sean Connery came back and did that. What is it? Never say never? Never say never again. Yes, see? He came back and did it. So that's why... And in tennis, like when I stopped playing in 85, we went to Asia. I was with Andre, and he, he was becoming number one in the world for the first time, and he's looking at the draw in Osaka, and he goes, BG, where are you? Why, why are you not in the draw? Because I've been playing for a whole year and coaching him. And I said, I'm done. He goes, well, you, you did not. And I stopped, but I never had a retirement. I just, I said, you never know. If I can't, wanted to come back, I don't want to say I'm done. So, like, I never officially retired. It's just like I haven't officially retired from coaching, but I'm happy doing TV. Well, Brad, the James Bond of the tennis world. It's been an absolute and he was pleasure. And he was my absolute idol when I was a kid. Everybody said, who was your tennis idol? I always say James Bond, without a doubt. Because if he was a tennis player, he'd have been number one in the world. He'd have been number one in the world at whatever he of tennis Of course he would have. That's why he's James Bond. And he would have done it. He wouldn't even needed to sweat. Well, there we go, Brad. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, to have my you on pleasure. Podcast. I look forward to having you back. Okay, in and Beach make sure year. David lightens up just a little bit. Embrace some nicknames. Not be so serious for a change. And he needs a couple of pints. It's because he's English. You know, he's too dry. It's the, yeah, it's the dry he's English got sense of humor. A really dry, very dry. It's too dry for me. It's like a dry beer. <laughs> on that note, thank you. Very <laughs> thank much. you. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of 
real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com